Um, to start, um, I want to ask, uh, for those who've ever been to an amusement park, have you ever seen this sign? Okay, you'll get wet on this ride. In fact, I've been to an amusement park that have a sign that says, you will get very wet on this ride. And I think there's two t- different types of amusement park people. Um, and we're going to find out where you guys uh, land on that two different types of people. If you saw this sign uh, at an amusement park, who still goes on this ride? Okay, by raise a hand. Who still goes? And there's another type of people. If you see this sign and you're at an amusement park to have fun, who does not go on this ride? Okay, you see it? Just the thought of getting wet, the thought of getting drenched. I, wow, a lot less of you than I actually uh, thought. Okay, have you ever noticed that on signs um, like this at an amusement park when people are standing there, people are coming off. They just came off the, the, the log ride. They went down the hill. They got absolutely drenched. Their hair is dripping with water. Their, their t-shirts are soaked. Every single bit of them is just covered in water. And the amazing thing to me about that, when you're standing in line getting in on these rides, the people that are coming off that just experience this, don't they seem generally happy? Don't they seem like they're laughing? Don't they seem like they just had a good time? It's amazing to me that the experience they just had, they're laughing about it. And even amazing to me, more amazing, is the fact that those that are standing in line are still in line. Like, they see what's about to happen to them. They see what they're about to get themselves into, and they are still there. You'll get wet on this ride. That's exactly what you want to do. It's why you came to the ride in the first place, to experience the the adventure of that is the amusement park, the rapids, the waters. It is a great time. There's something about that ride's air of danger that for whatever reason, it appeals to us. It is exciting. You know, when I think of an amusement park and I think of these signs, and I think of the opportunity when we see signs like this to say, okay, yes, I'm going to dive in, or no, that's just not for me. I can't help but think that sometimes we take our faith in the same exact way. Maybe when we're first hearing about Jesus, we hear his name. Maybe we go to a church, we hear a a few sermons for the first time. Maybe we even dive into a small group for the first time in our life. And that leads us to maybe investigating the scriptures to find out who Jesus is. And right off the bat, there's some signs. There's some things about the faith that are exciting to us, that kind of appeal to our sense of adventure, our sense of want, our sense of, quite frankly, what we need in life. We are searching for a purpose, a hope, and a meaning. And when we start hearing about Jesus and some of the promises that he has in Scripture, there are a few things to us, I don't know about you, but for me, that really stood out to me about the Christian faith. One of the most famous verses all throughout Scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16, one that will stick out to me for the rest of my life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. To think that we serve a God that loved us so much that he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, Jesus, for me. That he wanted to be in a relationship with me so much that he went to unimaginable lengths, like, like giving up his own son so that I might be in a relationship with him. There are other promises of scripture, uh, like Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, one that is very popular to a lot of us that says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I've just camped out on that piece of scripture, where the stresses of life and everything that's going on, I need that come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will. I love the I will statements. I will give you rest. It's one of the things I absolutely love. It's one of the things that stands out to me about Christianity. Psalms 103, 12 is another. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I moved your transgressions from 
from you. So, so far have your sins been removed. That The death that Jesus paved for us on the cross when he had his nails uh, put into his hands and the nail into his feet when he was hung up on that cross and he died for our sins. Those that come into a relationship with him, it doesn't matter what you have done, where you have been, what you have partaken in. It doesn't matter how much you don't think you deserve grace. God says this is for you. You know, when I was discovering who Jesus was, one of the things that really appealed to me is how unbelievably relatable Jesus was. I think of verses like uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 that says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet we did not sin. Jesus is so, or he did not sin. Jesus is so relatable, it's unreal. Everything that you and I have ever experienced, every temptation that you and I have ever had to go through, I don't know if you thought about it in those terms, but Jesus has gone through the same temptations, the same things in life that we have, yet he was without sin. You see, Jesus is unbelievably relatable. I don't think the world actually has too much of a problem relating to Jesus. I think sometimes it's the church that the world has a problem relating to. And I love the end of those verses that read this. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So many verses. The Great Commission that was given to all Christians in Matthew chapter 28 that says, therefore go out into all the world and baptize those in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know about you, just like that water ride and that sense of adventure, but for whatever reason, when I was very young, the, op- the, the thought of not just sharing my faith, but going literally out of my hometown, out of my state, and into the rest of the world, that, that God was calling us to that type of adventure, that type of relationship. I actually, uh, from, a, from a young age, starting in junior high, my parents were crazy enough to let me start going on mission trips. And I remember going into Mexico in seventh grade and helping building houses. And I did that trip for years on afterwards in high school. My parents were even more crazy and they allowed me to go to the South Pacific for a month and spend time in American, Western, Samoa, and Tonga. And to this day now, because of that calling that we've been given, I've been so fortunate to go to 14 different countries and preach on over 20 mission trips, the gospel message of Jesus. There are certain verses to me that are absolutely exciting what God has called us to. And I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, there's so much of me that is willing to stand in line and get wet. There's so much in me that is willing to say, okay, God, if you're calling to me those things, I want to sign up just, I am so geared to being a part of this. And as a preacher, there's so many other things that I could expound upon for hours. The grace and love and mercy and hope, the salvation that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. These are the things that I think we would all eagerly be excited to stand in line and get wet for. But the question Sean has really asked me to uh, dissect a little bit this morning, and uh, the observations that I want to make is, are we willing to also stand in line and get wet to take part of the adventure that Jesus Christ has called us to with the other promises and the other signs that you see in Scripture? that are just as true as the ones I've already expounded on and the ones I can continue expanding upon. For instance, those things that I just unpacked are just as true for you and I as these next ones are. Like Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, that reads, Then Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
So what Jesus is saying to you and I is, if you want to be my disciple, if you actually want to be a follower of Jesus Christ and distinguish yourself as one, then you need to deny yourself. It is no longer about you anymore. It's no longer about your hopes, your wants, your dreams, desires. In fact, he says you must take up your cross, which if you look in scripture is an instrument of death, spiritually dying to ourselves, again, our dreams, our ambitions, and saying, God, it's not about my kingdom anymore. It's not about what Danny Cox wants, where I want it, how I want it, the way I want it, but it's about Jesus Christ and his kingdom being advanced through me in my life. Those verses are just as true about saying, okay, it, it's, it's no longer about me anymore as the first ones. What about this one in John chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Isn't that interesting? I actually think that flies in the face of so many things that are being preached across our country right now. That says, hey, if you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're going to get the house with the white picket fence. You're going to have 2.5 kids and a golden retriever, you know? No, Jesus' calling is different. He says, actually, if you take it up and follow after me, you will have trouble. It even expands a little bit further in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So it's saying, if you actually walk the life that Jesus Christ has called us to, if you actually continue down the path that he wants for us, if you bear the name Jesus Christ, you know what? Persecution more than likely is coming your way, which, by the way, should make a lot of sense to us as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ himself was persecuted beyond all imagine. And I think if we expect to follow the life that he has called us to, we can probably imagine that persecution may or may not come our way if we follow in the name of Jesus. And so here, let me ask the question, who's ready to stand in that line and get wet today? I get to unpack the amazing question that Sean, your pastor, asked me to unpack this morning, which is, who is willing to honor God while facing the flames of life? And to do that, I'm going to preach through, uh, I've been asked to preach through one of the most famous passages in Scripture in regarding facing the flames in life, literally the flames in life, in Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. So if you have a Bible, feel free to uh, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's going to be up on the screen uh, for you this morning. So let's uh, dive right on in and see what the Lord has for us here uh, this morning. It says this, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 uh, cubits wide, which is about uh, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. It was set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, perfects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, perfects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers assembled for the dedication of uh, the image the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had set up and stood before it. Okay, so really quick, let me unpack this. What's going on here? Here you have this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was considered one uh, of the great kings of ancient Babylon. And by great, I mean uh, he led very much with a heavy stick. He was an extremely prideful king, um, but one that has a very interesting story if you read uh, the rest of Daniel. And he decides to make this idol, this image of gold that is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Now really quick. Okay. There's really not much uh, more description about what this image looked like other than it was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and it was made of gold. 
But I think you could speculate where this king was and how much he thought of himself. If he was going to set up an idol for everybody in the lands and all over the lands and every language is to come and worship, this was such a prideful kind of king that I would bet that that 90 foot tall, 9 feet wide image probably looked a whole lot like the king. He loved the idea of everybody in the land when, when the music started, and you're going to see this in a second, bowing down, hitting the dust, and worshiping something that looked like him. I can't say that for certainty, but I would bet it was probably pretty close to that. You know, this enormous structure would have been the height of a nine-story building and nine feet wide. If, you, uh, if it were an image of a man or this king, it would appear monstrous and clearly disproportionate. So once this monstrous uh, or this monstrosity was set up, the king sends out this summons that we see here in Scripture. And he convenes all the royalty, the nobility, the upper crust of society, the cream of the crop, if you will. And by the way, let's point this out. This wasn't a request by the king. This was a requirement of this king. It was a legal summons. And going on in verse 4, it says this. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zyre, the lith, the harp, the pipe, all the kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And this is the important part. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as you hear the sounds of the horn, the flute, the zyre, the lith, the harp, all kinds of music, all nations, all people of every language must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. To me, this is an absolutely crazy scene. Okay, once everybody was summoned, and some scholars believe that when the summons happened, about 300,000 people would have showed up to this legal requirement. 300,000 people gather on the plain of Dura, and this consecration ceremony begins. Now, really quick, this wasn't just a consecration ceremony or a worship service. This was a life or death ordeal. This was more than just a political assembly. It was a religious service, complete with music and the demand for total commitment on the part of all the worshipers. And I do mean to use the word worship because in Daniel chapter 3, the word worship is used about 11 different times to describe what was commanded of these people. And the people were forced to worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had built. Verse 5 describes this kind of crazy orchestra that was assembled. It was a collection of instruments ranging from harp, uh, harps to bagpipe-like instruments and included winds and string instruments. And in verse 7, it says that as soon as the music started, 300,000 people, imagine this, music started, 300,000 people poof, hit the dust, put their face in the ground, and started worshiping this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 300,000 people except for three people. Now remember, what was the penalty for not worshiping this image? It says they'd be tied up and thrown into the fiery furnace. And again, did I mention that there was a furnace here in this story? Okay, Mesopotamian smelting furnaces were used to smelt ore. These temperatures in these kilns could reach as high as 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. If you want to know how hot that is, if you've seen the pictures and the videos of uh, the volcano right now exploding in Hawaii and you see how red that lava is, that stands right about 1,800 to 2,000 degrees. And so it's no wonder that when this music started playing, 300,000 people hit the dirt and started worshiping. Why? 
because they saw what the outcome was if they weren't willing to do it. 300,000 people hit the dust, except for three people. Continuing on in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Look at these guys just continually buttering up the king, if you will. They continue on, your majesty, okay? Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zyre, the lith, the harp, pipes, all the kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of your province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They set... Uh, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So here you have these individuals, okay, 300,000 people that are worshiping. It's going to be very noticeable if there's a few that don't. And these individuals that notice, okay, if you look back in the history, these were people that were once powerful. The king came over, kind of conquered their land. They're no longer powerful anymore. They're kind of bitter about it. Not only that, but probably one of the jobs that they had was now given to these Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when they saw that they weren't obeying the king, they seized the opportunity possibly to get their positions back. They wanted these guys dead. They didn't like them that much. And notice the king's reaction, by the way. In verse 13, it says, Furious with rage, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zyre, the lith, the harp, pipes, all the kinds of music, look, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, then, then good, we can go on, is what he's saying. But if you do not worship it, you're going to be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from your hands? You know, it's really interesting to me that the king gave these guys a second chance. And the only thing we could really do is speculate as to why. You know, the command was, if they didn't worship, immediately being thrown in. And the king went to them and said, look, I'm going to give you a second chance here. So I don't know if you heard the, uh, the law. I don't know if it wasn't translated correctly. But from my mouth, from my lips, this is going to happen again. And if you don't hit the dust, if you don't bow down and worship, you will be thrown in. Again, you could speculate why he gave him a second chance. Maybe it's because he developed uh, a good rapport with these individuals. Maybe they brought him good fortune, wealth. Maybe because the king had such a close relationship with Daniel that I can't expand upon too much this morning. That's why these guys had a second chance. Again, we can speculate all we want why they got a second chance. We don't know. But you know what we do know? They would not be getting a third. Here's how they respond to the king in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Which is a big verse. We're going to come back, back to it. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But listen to this. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You know, these verses to me, in, in my opinion, are some of the greatest statements of faith in all of Scripture. I love that verse, the first one, verse 16. And I really actually enjoy how the King James Version of Scripture puts it. King James Version says this, We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. You know, if you translate that verse, the simple translation is simple. We don't have to think about our response. We don't have to think about it. 
And why is that? It's simple. Their minds were made up about their faith and relationship with God way before that image was ever set up. Why is this so important for you and I? Well, there's, I think, a lot of things we could expound from it, but seriously, I want us to think about it just from where we sit right now in the United States and and where our faith uh, could possibly go. I seriously doubt you and I in this country will ever have an opportunity in our lifetime. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I seriously doubt any one of you or me will ever have to face a physical furnace in our life. People coming to us and say, look, if you don't denounce your faith, if you don't okay, bow down and worship other gods, then you are going to be executed, you're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. I doubt in the United States right now in our lives that that's a possibility. I'm not saying it's not a possibility, which by the way, we also do need to point out that that kind of stuff is still happening to our brothers and sisters all over this world right now. If you don't think these kind of things that happen in the Bible aren't happening today, we all kind of need to wake up a little bit. And so even though we might not have to face a 2,000 degree hot furnace, I think so many of us know what it is already to have a furnace in our life. And going back to the words of Jesus who said, in this world you will have trouble. If you've lived a life, maybe you're young, maybe you just haven't had to experience anything yet. Jesus says, buckle up because one day you're going to. Your furnace might not be 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It might have been the time you got the cancer diagnosis. It might be the time you lost your spouse. It might be the time you lost your child. It might be the time you were fired from your job or betrayed by your friend. Maybe you and your spouse have been trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And the doctors have given you no reason whatsoever why you couldn't get pregnant. But for whatever reason, it's still not happening for you. And it feels just as real as 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit in your life right now. Maybe you're looking bankruptcy dead in the eyes. Maybe your marriage that you fought so hard for still ended in divorce. Maybe your adult children don't want anything to do with you for whatever reason at this point in their life. And the question I have for all of us is, do we have the twofold faith that we see here from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that said two things in this statement? They said one in verse 17, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace... Okay, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. That statement of faith is unbelievable. It's saying, okay, we believe in a God that is so mighty, so powerful, that literally breathed out the stars in the galaxy, that if I did have the cancer diagnosis, I know God, the great physician, can heal me without ever having to have doctors intervene in my life. I know he's so powerful, he can still do that. And I know of a God of the resurrection, okay, that even though my marriage seems like it's so far gone, I have so much faith in him that God, through prayer, through his spirit, can bring a restoration and a resurrection back to my marriage. I believe in a God that is so powerful and so mighty that he could do incredible things like help us reach our towns in Griffith, Crown Point, in the region up here in the northwest corner of Indiana. We have that type of faith. And those are the type of things that we are so eager to stand in line and get wet for when it, in regards to our faith. But are we willing to follow God and have the kind of faith in him that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in verse 18 that says, but even if he does not, even if the cancer doesn't go away, even if death is ultimately still the outcome, even if I lose my job, I never get healed. The baby never happens. The prayer isn't answered. But even if we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold 
you have set up. Has something ever happened to you in your life? It was a trial, tribulation, a death, whatever that might be, and someone came up to you, maybe a Christian who was very well-hearted and saying, that you know what, whatever's happened in your life, okay, God will never, ever give you something okay, that you can't bear. Has anybody ever heard somebody say that? Can I tell you something about that statement? It's baloney. It's wrong. It's actually not even scriptural. Scripture doesn't say that God won't give us something that we can't handle. Actually, Scripture says we won't be tempted beyond the measure that we can't say no to. That there's never going to be something in our life that we are tempted that we don't have the power through the Spirit to say no to. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that God will never give us something more than we can handle. Oftentimes, I think God allows us to live through things in our life so that our only outcome would be for us to hit our knees, hit the dirt, and rely on Him. And maybe rely on him in such a way that no way in our lives we could have ever relied on him to that degree unless that trial, that tribulation took place in our life. Maybe God couldn't have taken you to those levels in your faith unless you experienced it. I'm going to read through the rest of the story, verse 19 through 30, and just impact the rest of us for the end here. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual the command, uh, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the armies to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, their trousers, their turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of uh, the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, tied, fell into the furnace. Okay? A few things here. One, the king was mad. Okay? How dare they have the audacity, not just to uh, disobey me once, but twice, and to my face this time. Okay? And he was so mad that he ordered that his soldiers tie and bound up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, heat up the furnace seven times hotter, and then throw these guys in. And it said that the flames were so hot that these soldiers that bound them to take them to the furnace to throw them in, that when the soldiers got close, the soldiers burned up and died. It was that type of heat. Now notice something. Again, you would think, okay, by our faith, especially when we're young, by the statements that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made, okay, if God was a good God, right? Look what they just said. They, they just acknowledged their power. They just acknowledged the majesty of God. They just acknowledged how wonderful he is. And they even had the type of faith that said, but even if he doesn't show up, okay, we're still going to have faith in him. He's still good. He's still awesome. He's still powerful. You would think that God maybe, okay, would change the heart and the mind of the king and they wouldn't have to face that trial anymore. You would think that maybe, you know, the angels would fly out of heaven or something along those lines and rescue them before they ever had to face the trial. But notice what those verses said. Firmly tied, they fell in. They were thrown in to the furnace, even after that type of faith. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked the advisors, well, wait a second, weren't there three men that were tied up and fell into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. The fourth looks like the son of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. He had to shout. It was so hot, he couldn't get close. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, perfects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. 
King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defiled the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no one can, for no other god can save in this way. And then, uh, very cool in verse 30, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want to point out something really quick about what just happened. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew what was going to happen if they carried out their faith. They knew that the ultimate outcome was their death. And I also want to point out something that what looking into that blazing furnace, what it probably would have looked like and probably what it would not have looked like. I imagine when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looked into the flames, it was very difficult for them to see where God was. It was very trying. I would imagine from their perspective at that point, even with their radical faith, when they looked into the flames before they were getting in, I don't know if they saw God in those flames. But you know what I do know? Is in the midst of their hardest trial, hardest tribulation in their life, because of the faith that they had, God showed up in an incredible, incredible way. I, uh, I was going to say I used to love playing with these things when I was a kid, but let's be honest, I still love playing with them. Uh, um, I, I, if you understand how the concept of a slingshot works, you generally put something uh, in, in the slingshot, a rock or a marble, whatever that might be, and you fling it out at your target. And just because of physics, how physics works, you know, if you pull here, you know, the marble's not going to go that far. But if you really pull back, okay, that marble is going to have an opportunity to fly further than it ever had before because of how much it was pulled back. You know, I think with our faith, if, if we're willing to go to, with God to certain levels... Sometimes the farther we get pulled back in life, I think gives God an opportunity to repel us to levels that I'm not sure we could have gone if that pulling back in life didn't take place. Scripture actually speaks very clearly of this in James chapter 3, or James chapter 1, starting in verse 3, that says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you're facing trials of any kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith will develop perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that we might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I love it. It goes on that says, if anybody lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. And it will be given to him. I don't know why you're having to go through what you're going through right now. I don't know why sometimes life could be so hard and so challenging. I don't know why even with the greatest of faith that death still happens, that the, the healing never takes place, that the child never comes, that we still lose the job that we still get hurt. Jesus said, unfortunately, in this life you're going to have trouble. We could somewhat expect it. But even through those times, I know a few things. One, God is still very good. And God loves you still very much. And if we are willing in life to be pulled back, and during that time, declaring the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God, that God is still mighty, he's still in control, he still has the power to bring the healing, he still has the power to bring the restoration. But even if he does not, are we willing to have that type of faith? Are we willing to lean into God that much that maybe I don't know exactly why I'm going through that thing or having to face this trial in my life? But I know God is faithful. And I know if I'm willing to go into that trial and in that tri uh, tribulation, that it might be very difficult to see what God is doing at the moment. 
But more often than not, I've seen God show up through the toughest and hardest of times. And so I'm asking all of us, I'm asking myself included, when it comes to the promises of Scripture, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control, the salvation, the hope, the love, the mercy, the grace, the salvation that comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I know we're all maybe eager to stand in that line and get wet. But when it comes to the hard truths in Scripture, are you going to be just as faithful to get on that ride? 